This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Jyoti Mishra, and it is my pleasure and honor to be chairing this panel on magnetic brain stimulation today. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist by training and assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UCSD. I direct the NEAT Labs at UCSD, where we develop brain-based digital tools to inform psychiatry and mental health research. I would like to now introduce you to the esteemed speakers today. We have two speakers. Our first one will be Dr. Dakshin Ramanathan, who is an assistant professor in our Department of Psychiatry at UCSD. He's also a staff physician at the VA San Diego Medical Center, where he co-directs a clinic that uses magnetic brain stimulation and electroconvulsive therapy for veterans with severe depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. As my partner at work and at home, Dr. Ramanathan also co-directs our NEAT labs, where he leads animal research studies on brain processes underlying complex cognitive functions such as learning, attention, behavioral flexibility, and reward processing. Our second speaker today will be Dr. Jeff Daskalakis, who is the newly appointed chair of the Department of Psychiatry at UCSD. He was formerly the Temerity Chair and Chief of General Adult Psychiatry at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Canada. His research focuses on neurophysiological and treatment studies using magnetic brain stimulation as well as magnetic seizure therapy. He has held several federal and philanthropic awards, totaling over $55 million as principal investigator. He has over 450 peer-reviewed publications, is an editorial board member for Biological Psychiatry, and an associate editor for the Clinical Neurophysiology Journal. He is also a member of the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation Scientific Council. Most of all, Dr. Daskalakis is a generous mentor and inspiring leader for junior faculty in our department, such as me. And I have the honor to be actively collaborating with both speakers today on the Defeating Depression Award from the Hope for Depression Foundation. Now it's time for their much anticipated talks. Um, Dr. Ramanathan, please take it away. Thank you so much for the invitation. This is an honor to be invited to this meeting and also to be speaking with Dr. Daskalakis, who, as Dr. Mishra mentioned, um, is our new chair and uh, a very, very renowned and exciting researcher in TMS. So as a neuroscientist, I'm, I'm a neuroscientist as well as a, as a psychiatrist. And what I wanted to do was focus a little bit on both the neuroscience as well as the, the clinical aspects of uh, brain stimulation and magnetic brain stimulation in particular, so that everybody in the audience gets a sense of how, how is it working, why does it work, and does it work? And I was trying to kind of think about the questions my parents ask me about what I do as a psychiatrist when I use TMS. So I'm gonna start with some basics, right? We all have a brain, hopefully. Um, there's estimates vary, but probably the best estimate is around 86 billion neurons in our brain. And each of these neurons has about a thousand connections, some way more, but on average about a thousand connections. So 86 trillion connections in our brain. 
And what is what is a neuron do, right? We talk about neuroscience, but I just want to give everybody in the audience a sense of the main job or one of the main jobs of each neuron is to carry information from one place to another, right? So an example is when we see things, light and, and stimuli come to neurons in our eye, in our retina, these neurons go back into our thalamus and send a message to neurons in our thalamus, which then go on to our visual cortex. And when our visual cortex gets activated, we start seeing things, right? So that's the job of a neuron is to send messages. How does a neuron do this? So, you know, the connections, we talked about how there's 86 trillion connections in our brain. That's one neuron connecting to another neuron. And it does this in a synapse. And the, the messengers are chemicals, right? So neurotransmitters, which you all have heard about, are what the neurons use to communicate with each other or talk with each other. And all, almost all psychiatric medications, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, medications for Alzheimer's disease, medications for uh, uh, psychosis, they all work on these chemicals. They, they Sometimes they increase, sometimes they decrease the chemicals, sometimes they block the receptors so that even though chemicals are there, they can't send messages. So that's how most psychiatric medications work chemically. But the thing is neurons also work electrically. Neurons use electrical activity to pass signals through themselves before they get to the synapse. So when two neurons are talking to each other, we talked about that synapse, which is chemical. But to get there, imagine a neuron from my eyes going back to my thalamus, that's electrical. In the thalamus, it makes a connection, that's chemical. But then that neuron from my thalamus travels back to my brain, that's electrical again. So neurons use electricity to send signals, even though they also use chemicals to actually talk between each other. So the electrical properties of the neurons is very important. And when we measure brain activity, a lot of what we're measuring is this electrical activity. So imagine one neuron would be very hard to pick up, to detect. But when a lot of neurons are active together, we can actually measure that. And you just heard some talks about brain waves and alpha waves and gamma waves. And the, the, the reason why we can pick up these brain waves using EEG is simply because a lot of neurons are activating all at the same time, sending electric signals. And it's amazing that this works, but it works. We can record activity using EEG. We can actually record magnetic fields using MEG, magneto magnetoencephalography. So these are the tools we use and we use as neuroscientists to try to understand what's happening in the brain. They're also tools that depend on the fact that the brain is electrical. Um, you know, I'm sure that everybody, many people in this audience have seen pictures of the brain from MRI machines and fMRI. And again, these are related and are likely driven in large part by the electrical activity in the brain. They're not electrical, but they're related to the electrical activity. Just as a quick note about brain imaging, whether it's fMRI, EEG, MEG, brain, brain measures in humans are a little bit like measuring light activity and trying to know what commerce, what, what economic activity is happening in the country. It's related, right? It, you get some clues, 
but we're missing a big picture. And a lot of what neuroscientists are trying to do is get a better, more detailed view of what's happening in the brain in order to come up with better treatments for depression, um, any other psychiatric disorder, any other neurologic disorder. And a lot of the work around brain stimulation has really been driven by basic research in neuroscience, which is why it's a very exciting field to be in. So now that we've got some of that background out of the way, um, let's talk about some of the big questions in brain stimulation and the area of brain stimulation. So one question, I talked about medications working chemically, but instead of changing the chemistry of the brain, one simple or basic question is, can we directly activate neurons electrically? And one of the pioneers in this, in this area, one of the giants in, in the area of brain stimulation is this neurosurgeon called uh, Wilder Penfield. So Wilder Penfield, he was, he was kind of this uh, amazing, amazing neurosurgeon, neuroscientist. And he came up first with the insight that epilepsy, back in those days, we didn't have a good sense of what epilepsy was or what to do about it. He, he came up with this conclusion based on pathologic investigations that a lot of the reason, some of the reason people have epilepsy is because they have scarring or other kinds of damage in their brain. And that if you could, as a surgeon, he can do this, if you can cut out that part of the brain, some people will have less seizures or less, less, less epilepsy. Their epilepsy is better managed. So that was very, very insightful. A second major insightful thing that he realized is he could actually do these surgeries in awake patients. He could use an anesthetic preparation and actually the brain doesn't have pain receptors. If I touch my brain, as soon as I get rid of the scalp and the skin surrounding the brain and everything where there's a lot of pain receptors, the brain itself doesn't feel. So he would put electrodes in the brain and he would stimulate all over the brain. And he did a lot of these studies and helped to map out what different parts of the brain were doing by passing little pieces of stimulation. And for example, when he did this over motor cortex, he was one of the first people to find out that actually a lot of our motor cortex is representing hand and face movements because we are good with our hands and we're good with our faces and not for our toes, for example, because we don't move our toes very much. But he also made some other fantastic discoveries that you could get very complicated perceptions from brain stimulation as well. So I'm going to read this example. When an electrode was applied in the gray matter of the temporal lobe at point 23, this is a case report, the patient observed, I hear some music. 15 minutes later, the electrode was applied to the same spot again without her knowledge. I hear music again, she said, it's like a radio. Again and again, the electrode tip was applied to this point. Each time she heard an orchestra playing the same piece of music. When the electrode was applied again, she began to hum a tune and all in the operating room listened in astonished silence. So he found that it's not just simple motor actions. You could pass stimulation in a part of the brain and get very complicated perceptions. Um, now, this is more recent. This is a case report from 1999 when surgeons were implanting an electrode for, for Parkinson's disorder, which is a, sometimes a, a treatment for refractory Parkinson's disorder. And this is what they found when they were stimulating one particular site. During the post-operative evaluation, 
The patient's face expressed profound sadness within five seconds after the current was delivered. Although still alert, the patient leaned to the right, started to cry, and verbally communicated feelings of sadness, guilt, uselessness, and hopelessness. I'm falling down. I no longer wish to live, things like that. Amazingly, her depression disappeared less than 90% seconds after the stimulation was stopped. So these are the kinds of studies that, that help answer that question. Yes, stimulation can affect the brain in a way that's meaningful, that's complicated, that can evoke very complicated but immediate changes in mood and thinking and feeling and hearing and sensing. Okay, big question number two, can brain stimulation be used to treat complex disorders like depression? Now, this is a study again from, this is a study back in 2005 by uh, Helen Mayberg and Andres Lozano and others. And what they did is they honed in on a brain, a part of the brain called the subgenual cingulate cortex. This is deep inside our brain underneath a lot of other tissue. You can only access it really through surgery. But a lot of studies, including some of theirs, had shown that too much activity in these parts of the brain was associated with depression. And when people took medications or ECT or other treatments, activity in this part of the brain seemed to calm down a little bit. So they said, what happens if we put an electrode in there, working with surgeons and neuroscientists, and try to suppress activity in the brain? And what they found, so with stimulation, they found all patients, patients spontaneously reported acute, that means immediate effects, calmness, lightness, disappearance of the void, a sense of heightened awareness, interest, and, connect, and connectedness. Now, this is still a work in progress, deep brain stimulation, and I'm not going to talk too much more about it. Um, some larger sham controlled trials have not been positive, um, but there's still enough interest in the idea that many researchers are still trying to figure out, is there a good or the right target in which stimulation can help treat people's depression over the long term? That's the, that's the big goal here. I just want to highlight that a lot of these brain regions are related to things we think about as core features of depression, not being motivated to do anything, not feeling enjoyment, um, just, just kind of feeling blah or negative or dark. And these are the parts of the brain regions they target, uh, regions involved in reward and punishment and things like that. They're very deep. Um, one of the recent attempts at doing this actually uses a brain recording in amygdala to trigger stimulation in one of these reward regions. And this was recently reported on in the New York Times and everywhere. And so this is a, this is a big deal because it, in a way, is a smart form of deep brain stimulation that people are hoping may work, even though the, the other forms didn't. Now, this is getting to the, the important part of our talk. So I told you why electrical stimulation can work, because our brain works electrically. I told you that people have shown that it does work with invasive electro electrodes. What about if you don't want an electrode implanted in your brain? And I work in a treatment-resistant clinic, and most people would not want electrodes implanted in their brain. So this is one of the tools we use for non-invasive brain stimulation. It's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's a method that can actually affect the electrical activity of the brain about two to four centimeters deep. 
So we can't get really deep with a TMS coil, but we can get deep enough to actually uh, affect the brain and affect neurons in the brain. And I'll show you how we know this. Um, one of the things about how TMS works is it's actually based on physics. When you create a rapid alternating magnetic field, that induces an electric field. So we're actually able to inject electric current into the brain using a magnet. This is what it looks like. And what I'm showing you is we can use TMS to stimulate somebody's motor cortex and get their finger to move. And this is exactly what we would do when we're clinically mapping out how much energy to use for somebody's action. And you can see when I stimulate uh, uh, his finger moves, his hand moves, I'm decreasing the amount of energy I use. And you can see it gets a little bit more focal. I can stimulate and pretty soon you'll just see a thumb movement. So amazingly enough, TMS can penetrate deep enough into the cortex to stimulate single digits, kind of like Penfield did. The first demonstration that this was possible was back in 1985 by this British guy named Tony Barker. And it created a sensation in the field. Everybody immediately realized like, hey, this is a tool that people could use both for research, but also for clinic clinical purposes. Now I wanna get back to this picture. All of these targets are super deep, right? TMS can't be used to affect these targets. It's superficial. It affects the superficial parts of the brain, not the deep parts of the brain. So how does it work? Well, we, we have found through research, through brain imaging studies, like I was telling you about, that this deep part of the brain that seems to be involved with depression, the subgenual cingulate and other regions like it, are actually, actually seem to be uh, anti-correlated, so regulated by prefrontal brain regions. So when there's more activity in prefrontal cortex, it seems like there's less activity in these depression-related regions. Um, this was kind of a nice model then for how TMS could work. By stimulating or boosting activity in the prefrontal cortex, we're actually able to cause activity patterns in larger distances away from prefrontal cortex that's helpful with regulating these deeper regions that we do think is involved in depression. This affect network that I talked about that a lot of people are doing brain stimulation in, and also other parts of the brain that seem to be involved in negative ruminations or otherwise anxiety and other things like that. So that's the main way we think TMS is working is by stimulating this target for, it, for depression. That's how we think it's working for depression. By simulating the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, we're affecting brain networks in, in distant areas, and we can directly activate it and modulate these networks. The first trials for using this as a tool for depression happened in the mid-1990s, and uh, they essentially said, well, one time is probably not enough. What if we do a, a type of stimulation that's called repetitive TMS, where we're stimulating rapidly uh, over a burst? And in those days, the protocol was anywhere from you know, 10 to 40 minutes. They hadn't really dialed it in. Um, but they said, what happens if we do this every day? 
eventually would people start feeling better? Could this be a treatment for depression, right? Could this replace some other things that we sometimes do like ECT or things like that? And early studies were pretty positive. And so just to give kind of a general timeline, you know, TMS was first used in the 1985, FDA approved it actually uh, based on a, a, a large sham controlled trial in 2008. Other studies have followed and have generally shown continued positive results. I'm gonna highlight one of Dr. Daskalakis's recent studies. It's one of the largest studies published in Lancet, you know, one of the, the best medical journals. And it's one of the largest studies for TMS. And it was actually a pivotal study that changed how we do TMS. And it's probably gonna change how most people do TMS. So I told you TMS was approved for depression. It's been used. But up until this point in time, the protocol for depression was somebody had to go in, come into the clinic five days a week for four to six weeks. And each time they would come in, it would be a 40-minute treatment. And what he actually tested was there's so, there were some neuroscience-based studies that showed that a three-minute different type of stimulation protocol called theta burst would be just as effective. And they what they found is if you look at the blue, that's the three-minute version of stimulation. The red is the 40-minute version. The outcomes for depression were identical. It also gave us one of the largest trials in estimating the effects of TMS. Almost 50% of people who are resistant to medications will respond to this kind of treatment. That means they had a reduction in depression of about 50%. Their depression is cut in half. And a third of the people who get this treatment won't have depression at all anymore. Um, just to highlight for everybody who's interested, the worst side effect is a seizure. We're stimulating your brain. We can accidentally trigger a seizure, but it's pretty rare. It's about one in 30,000 times somebody delivers a treatment. I imagine it's kind of like people who are sensitive um, and there are certain conditions that can put somebody at a higher risk of having a seizure. And we generally try to screen for that when we're deciding who should get TMS. Um, other side effects tend to be pretty well tolerated, things like headache, dizziness, and um, just vague things that people experience right after the TMS. I'm going to finish by saying a lot of quite basic questions, how do we do it, have been answered, and many of them actually by our new chair, which is very exciting. There's a lot of research questions that remain, and a lot of it is actually involving neuroscientists, working with clinicians, working with engineers to kind of come up with, with answers. And th the questions are things like, where is the best place to stimulate? Where should we stimulate for different types of disorders? And there's all kinds of research of TMS for substance abuse, uh, psychosis, you name it, people are trying to see if TMS could work how to stimulate, just like I talked about with Dr. Daskalakis's early results, um, how you stimulate could, could change how long you have to do it or how effective it could be. Uh, using MRI or EEG to personalize the brain stimulation, combining TMS with psychotherapy, meditation, or other behavioral or lifestyle practices. And just to highlight what Dr. Mishra said, uh, the three of us are actually working on a trial right now together where we're trying to use TMS in conjunction with a breath-based meditation task to see if that meditation can augment the effects of TMS, make the TMS work better. Uh, so I'm out of time, and actually, that's the end of my talk. 
Thank you, Dakshin, for such a great presentation. And I welcome Dr. Daskalakis, who's just joined us, um, to give his talk. Thank you, Dr. Mishra, and, and uh, a pleasure to meet you all. Uh, my name is Jeff Daskalakis. Uh, special thanks to Dr. Justy for putting this um, symposium together. When I first started in the field, there was very little um, knowledge about what stimulation with magnets could do for patients with severe psychiatric illness. We'd known that electroconvulsive therapy had a long history of, of, of effective use in severe psychiatric illness. And you've just heard two excellent talks on the use of transcranial magnetic stimulation to uh, improve resistant depressive symptoms. The question then becomes, what happens when patients don't respond to transcranial magnetic stimulation? So um, that's the focus of this talk. Uh, again, my name is Jeff Daskalakis. I'm the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at U University of California, San Diego. I've been here for a little over a year. You've heard about the economic burden of, of depression, but there's a personal suffering that takes place, of course, alongside the economic burden, which is enormous. And the personal suffering is, is tremendous. Um, it is the single leading cause of global disease burden worldwide, and people suffer tremendously as a result of it. Two-thirds of patients, um, fortunately, do respond to medications. A third probably do not. Um, in the pivotal STAR-D trial by Maduka Trivedi, about it, this, is, this is where we came up with the definition of treatment-resistant depression, the idea that um, um, when you do not respond to either one trial or two trials of antidepressant medications, you're no longer likely to respond to medications. And yet... Historically, we had very few options for those patients. The, the folks who do not respond to two trials of antidepressant medication would typically go on a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and so on, and so on, um, hoping for a response. Those people are twice as likely to be hospitalized. They're three times as likely to receive more psychiatric medications. Um, and then the, the healthcare costs when you don't respond to, um, to two trials of antidepressant medications are 19 times the healthcare costs when you do respond to medications. And, and for a substantial proportion of people, even when they do respond to medications, to antidepressants, a significant proportion do relapse. And so I'm painting a picture that just highlights that medications have a key role to play in uh, the treatment of depression, but there are need to be advancements in treatment as you've heard. Importantly, we have a situation where major depressive disorders also associated with suicidal ideation. Um, 40,000 Americans die every year by suicide. That's over 100 people a day. Uh, more than half of those suicides take place in people over the age of 45. Um, and it's important to note that the experience of suicide is um, painful and, and uh, alarming as well. So it is, of course, Suicide is a tragic event, but the experience of having thoughts of wanting to die on a near daily basis is, is very, very burdensome. And we need to help people with depression, not only deal with their depressive symptoms, but also some of these more, more, uh, more uh, defying and yet um, persistent symptoms that are, that are very difficult to treat. The fellow in the top um, right is Corey Weissman, who's just recently joined us. Um, from the University of Toronto Corps, and I worked together at, at, uh, at the Center for Addiction Mental Health at the University of Toronto for, for five years. He was my clinician scientist trainee. He's now joined us, fortunately, at the University of California, San Diego. Um, 
to lead the neuromodulation program here at, uh, at UCSD. And Corey published this key paper that, that was a secondary analysis of that earlier paper that I mentioned on, on, uh, on, on depressive symptoms with antidepressants. And what, what he found was two things. If you experience suicidal ideation um, while you're being treated for antidepressants, your likelihood of responding is lower. So the experience of suicide when you're depressed actually portends a, a negative prognostic outcome in relation to medications. The other thing he demonstrated is that after two trials, again, after two trials of antidepressants, there is virtually no change in suicidal symptoms. So there's re it's really quite pointless to, to add medications once a person has failed to respond to two different antidepressant medications. In other words, additional options are needed. So we have one of the most effective treatments um, for depression. It results in remission of depressive symptoms upwards of 60 to 80% of the time. Um, and it actually is very effective at, at uh, reducing um, suicidal symptoms in patients with depression. And this is one of the most effective treatments that we have in medicine. And yet it's also one of the most stigmatizing. Of course, that treatment is electroconvulsive therapy. And electroconvulsive therapy was... was uh, was really vilified in the in the uh, in the popular media well over 50 years ago now, or around 50 years ago, and and ECT is an effective treatment as I mentioned, but it is only used in about one percent of patients with resistant depressive symptoms because of fear, because of stigma, and because of the cognitive side effects that it engenders. And so there need to be advancements. Now TMS, as you heard, is a very effective treatment for depression, and it's it's a new frontier in the area of of, um, of depressive symptoms and, and gaining a lot of traction throughout the country. I, uh, I recall a day where no one had heard about TMS and now most major centers have TMS and, and are using it widely. But what happens when TMS does not work? Remember TMS works in about 50% of patients. It does not work in the other 50%. We need advanced treatments and move away from this, this, um, treatment called electroconvulsive therapy that is very effective, but it's over 70 years old. So the question that that was posed by by um, Dr. Listenby and colleagues years ago, um, Dr. Listenby is head of neuromodulation at the NIMH, um, and she posed the question as to whether or not we can produce seizures with magnetic fields. Um, why produce seizures with magnetic fields? Well, we know the seizure itself therapeutic seizure, as I mentioned, in the context of ECT, can be very effective, and yet is also associated with significant cognitive side effects. And what you see here in the depiction in the figure is that the amount of energy that is required to produce a therapeutic seizure with a magnetic field is about a tenth of that that is required to produce a therapeutic seizure with an electrical field. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Most notably is the fact that the magnetic field is much more focused and does not um, spread throughout the brain. And here's just an example of that spread. This is a, uh, a, a pattern of electrical activity that happens with electroconvulsive therapy. The hotter colors mean the spread of electrical activity through the brain when a treatment is delivered. These are different forms of electroconvulsive therapy. We're currently using right unilateral ultra brief forms, but those forms also result in significant spread of electrical activity. And what you see here with a magnetic seizure therapy field 
is very, very focal activation to produce a, a therapeutic seizure, about a tenth of the energy that is required um, in the context of treatment. So the two fellows here, um, I think you've heard uh, of both of them now. The fellow on the uh, left is Jonathan Downer. The fellow on the top right is Dr. Daniel Bloomberger. Um, all three of us are, are psychiatrists, and, and for years we worked together in Toronto before I arrived here. And we embarked on a trial that was funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, federal uh, funding agency in Canada, where we were interested in looking at different types of stimulation frequencies associated with magnetic seizure ther therapy. The reason for the different types of stimulation frequencies is that we know that different frequencies have a harmonic in the brain that resonates um, differently to produce a seizure. And so we wanted to see what what um, pattern of stimulation was most effective at producing a seizure and what that pattern was in relation to therapeutic response. So um, over the course of five years, we enrolled about 140 patients and, and patients got sequential treatment um, in a particular frequency. Um, and we, every, after every about 30 or so patients, we changed that frequency so that we could find out what the best frequency was. Ideally, this would be done in a randomized trial, but because this was a uh, pilot trial, we looked at different frequencies in different groups. What we found is a high frequency group, the 100 uh, hertz group, 100 hertz delivered um, over the frontal area of the brain with a large magnetic field, about twice the size of that as TMS, produced significant remission in depressive symptoms. The rates of remission were over 50% um, in the per protocol analysis, which is people who remained in the trial throughout the course of the study. Those rates decreased in the moderate frequency group and in the low frequency group. In other words, the highest frequency produced the best therapeutic results. And that high frequency was 100 hertz, of course. Patients who got magnetic seizure therapy, um, they were they, the experience to them was the same as with electroconvulsive therapy. The idea is you establish an IV, you use a gentle anesthetic, which helps people fall asleep for a few minutes while you're delivering this therapeutic seizure. And the therapeutic seizure produced in this case, remission of complete remission of depressive symptoms, uh, well over 50% of the time. Now, when patients uh, undergo ECT, it produces a profound change in their cognition. Memory, both anterograde, that is the ability to generate new memory, and retrograde, the ability to recall old memory, is severely affected. And this has been demonstrated time and time again. So we were very interested in the cognitive outcomes associated with magnetic seizure therapy. It's one thing to look at uh, to, 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 to deal with hypothetics, and that is a magnetic field only uses 10, to, 10, to, uses 10 times less energy than an electrical field to produce a, a seizure, but that may mean nothing in terms of cognition. And so we prospectively looked at cognition, and what was demonstrated is a near, if not complete, um, neutrality in terms of cognitive performance. That, that is, um, there was one measure of cognition that worsened, and there were two measures one measure of memory that worsened and two measures of memory that actually improved. And the one measure of memory that actually worsened, we deduced based on other trials that use this memory function, that this was a time effect, not a treatment effect. And the reason for that is because this index called the autobiographical memory inventory was developed initially. And what it was most sensitive to was the time um, and so because patients were in this trial for up to six weeks, that six weeks in and of itself 
is uh, affects memory. Um, and so your ability to recall information six weeks prior is lessened over time. That just, that's just natural. And the effect is around the same as what you would see when putting people on antidepressants. So um, the, the sum total here is that this treatment, besides producing 50% uh, significant um, improvement, uh, more than 50% of the time, was completely neutral in terms of cognitive performance. How about remission rates uh, of suicide? I remember I talked to you about depressive symptoms. How about suicide? And it turns out that the lower frequencies in a paradoxic way produce best therapeutic effects in relation to suicide rates. We had rates of remission of suicide that was well over 70% in the 50 hertz group. And this is now being, uh, being carefully looked at in separate populations. Um, this was also a study that was published um, by our group uh, just recently in JAMA Network Open. So with all that data, we um, applied and were funded by the National Institutes of Mental Health for a five-year funded trial between the Center for Mental Health in Toronto and UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. We are now bringing this trial to UCSD, so there will be three sites COVID significantly slowed down recruitment, as you can imagine, um, but also because I moved here and now we have local expertise where we are going to make sure that patients have the option to participate in the trial if they so choose. Now, depressive symptoms are effectively treated with electroconvulsive therapy, ergo the rationale for using magnetic seizure therapy in that population. But how about in schizophrenia? Well, it turns out that, that ECT has been widely used in patients with schizophrenia for, for, for some time, um, and it's used to, to manage very severe resistant forms of psychotic illness in patients with schizophrenia. And so we embarked on a very similar trial looking at magnetic seizure therapy in treatment-resistant schizophrenia. And what we found, again, over the course of the, the, the treatment is delivered three times a week for up to six weeks. What we found was a significant improvement in, in psychotic symptoms in patients with schizophrenia. This was quite uh, important and, and, uh, and highlighted the fact that um, seizures have a, a therapeutic effect in, in patients with depression, but also in patients with severe psychotic illness. Uh, in terms of their memory, we did see the same degradation of the autobiographical memory inventory as we saw in, um, in patients with depression. But again, we strongly believe this is a time effect. The effect on the MOCA was almost, um, uh, well, it was negligible. It, this, was, this did not reach statistical significance. And this just implies that, that again, magnetic seizure therapy in this population um, had very little effect. Sorry had very little effect on, on cognition, but it had a profound effect on their psychotic symptoms. And, and you know, when, when we talk about schizophrenia, we talk about very high rates of treatment resistance and very few therapeutic options available to that population. So the idea that this treatment um, to produce a magnetic-induced therapeutic seizure is an important option for these patients. And it was one of the first trials to have, it is the first trial to have ever been published in patients with schizophrenia. Uh, the trial was, was um, those small pilot data then led to a larger trial that's currently ongoing, funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. It's a multi-center trial involving uh, Toronto, London, Ontario, and, and, uh, and uh, Vancouver. And what we're looking is to see whether or not magnetic seizure therapy or electroconvulsive therapy are 
are equivalent to one another in terms of efficacy and magnetic seizure therapy is superior in terms of its cognitive outcomes. Going to shift gears just a little bit in the remaining time I have to talk to you a little bit about a, uh, I spoke about harmonics and stimulating the brain uh, using particular frequencies to produce therapeutic effects. Well, we can use TMS in this case, not as a treatment, but as a neurophysiological tool. And that neurophysiological tool gives us these in this, this enormous amount of data around the resonant harmonics that take place in the brain. And the fellow on the top right is Yun Ming Sun. He's now at uh, Stanford doing a postdoc. But back in 2016, we looked very specifically at patients with depression who got magnetic seizure therapy and who were experiencing suicidal ideation. And what we did was we used TMS combined with EEG to look at the harmonics in the brain and specifically what was the function of these tiny little neurons called interneurons and how they interacted with the brain and could those, the function of those interneurons tell us about how people respond to treatment. And there's a whole backstory that I'm not going to get into here, but just to say that what we did was we used these physiological signals in the brain to demonstrate that we could predict nine times out of 10 who would have a therapeutic response to magnetic seizure therapy in depression. This was very reassuring and pointed us to the fact that we could almost predict before the patient got treatment, we could predict what kind of therapeutic response that they would have. We also demonstrated that um, magnetic seizure therapy, much like ECT, much like antidepressants, and much like TMS, produces neuroplasticity. That is the ability of the brain to healthy rewire in response to this treatment. And what you see here is an enhancement of neuronal circuitry or neuronal connectivity in response to a course of magnetic seizure therapy. And finally, what we also see um, is this other physiological signal, this key physiological signal that was published just recently by Itai Hadas, one of the scientists in our group here at UCSD. What, what we did here was we looked at the physiological signal, but in deep brain regions. Now you may ask, how do you record physiological signal in deep brain regions? Well, you can infer based on a complex series of equations where the source of the electrophysiological signal comes from. And in this case, we looked specifically at an area called the subgenual cingulate, the SGC. And in this area, the brain has been implicated in depression um, re um, re repeatedly and is actually the node in the brain where some of the early deep brain stimulation studies looked at in the context of treating depression. And what we found was the hyperactivity of the subgenual cingulate that has been repeatedly demonstrated in patients with depression was suppressed through the action of magnetic seizure therapy. This is very reassuring data, and it tells us that we can, we can use these different markers in the brain to help us predict who is likely to respond to treatment and who is not likely to respond to treatment. I just want to acknowledge all the people that I've worked with over the years, some of the key people that I've worked with at the Temerity Center, a large group of co-investigators in our funding sources. And uh, I'm delighted to be here in San Diego to continue this important work. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff, for such an um, exciting and informative talk. Uh, we'll go on and take a few questions now. 
One of the questions that has come in is asking about TMS and MST for bipolar depression and um, what are, how effective that might be. So Jeff, if you'd want to take that. Sure. So um, the data in bipolar disorder is very early days. We, we are actually conducting a trial right now in Toronto that's led by Daniel Bloomberger, Dr. Daniel Bloomberger, who's looking at magnetic seizure therapy for patients with bipolar depression. Um, bipolar depression is associated with depressive symptoms nine times more um, than it is associated with manic symptoms. When people think about bipolar disorder, they typically think of, of the manic episode. But, but what many people fail to realize is that you're, you're about nine times more likely to have uh, depressive symptoms and manic symptoms, and you're also more likely to not respond to medications. And so having TMS um, it used in that population, the tricky part of bipolar disorder is that some of the medications that we use actually have negative effects on the brain stimulation approaches that we, we treat with. I'll explain what I mean. Um, anticonvulsants are used routinely, uh, lamotrigine, um, uh, carbamazepine, valproate, these are medications that have been used routinely over the years to treat bipolar depression. What they do is they actually prevent the brain from seizing. There are anticonvulsants, and yet we use both with TMS for therapeutic seizures, MST, and also electroconvulsive therapy. We use these treatments to produce a therapeutic seizure. What you see is uh, an attenuated response because these medications are anticonvulsants. In some ways, we're we're antagonizing the, the, the treatment effects through medications. And this has, been, this has been demonstrated. We know that these medications don't work, prevent ECT from working as effectively, and they may prevent RTMS and magnetic seizure therapy from working as effectively as well. And so my hope is that in future trials of both TMS and magnetic seizure therapy, we'll be able to take away these medications that have a negative impact on our treatments and allow the brain to restore in healthy ways, and those trials are currently underway. Great, thank you. Um, this is for both uh, um, speakers today that you can talk with uh, relative to the populations that you have served. Um, how long does the treatment usually last? So how often can it be repeated is another question related to it. I'll, I'll speak for TMS in the veteran population. Um, we usually do our treatments for four to six weeks. Uh, generally, our treatment lasts about six weeks, so five days a week for those six weeks. And we, we often find we, that we will do a maintenance protocol. And there's not a lot of data on this, but there's some data that says that TMS plus or minus maintenance will often lead to about a you know, 60 to 80% rate of maintaining the effect. Uh, and there is a paper that suggested that um, if depression comes back, you can repeat the TMS. In other words, you can get somebody back into five days a week treatment for a few weeks. And about 75% or three quarters of those will respond the same way they responded the first time. And that's been my clinical experience as well, is that generally if somebody responded once to TMS, whether they continue maintenance or not, if they relapse, they seem more or less likely to, to, to respond. Um, so in that sense of repeated versus like maintenance, we also have some folks that just get maintenance TMS. They find that they do better if they come in every week or every two weeks or every three weeks and they continue to get it. Um, 
So that's what I would say about in, in our population and in, in my clinical experience. Great. Um, the next question is relevant to the uh, audience that we have today, older adults, and uh, also uh, effects on cognition. And, and some uh, audience members are wondering whether it can help to improve uh, brain oscillations related to cognition, especially how that pertains to Alzheimer's. And if you read, um, know about that the evidence base, if you'd like to talk about it. The stimulation uh, of the brain and its ability to, to, to um, produce neuroplasticity is an intriguing one um, for memory specifically and memory as it pertains to Alzheimer's. Um, we haven't cracked the code yet. We don't know how to stimulate the brain to try to provoke improved cognition. We've tried and sometimes it shows up as a positive signal and sometimes it doesn't. Um, I'm confident though, and maybe related to the, the audience's question around um, oscillations. Um, as was mentioned by Dr. Um, um, earlier, the oscillations um, or the frequency pattern um, is eventually going to point us in the right direction. Where do we stimulate? How do we stimulate the frequency, the intensity, the duration? All of those are going to be key um, physiological parameters that we can adjust, maybe at a group level, maybe at an individual level, to try to um, hack, if you will, into the brain to try to produce better cognitive performance. The challenge, of course, is that all of our brains are entirely different and we may respond just like we all wear different shoes. We may all respond to different stimulation parameters. And so trying to individualize that response is going to be a key. We have conducted and are conducting trials right now looking at TMS um, to treat um, Alzheimer's. Uh, magnetic seizure therapy is actually an interesting one as well, because as I showed you earlier, the, the um, evidence suggested that there was a pro-cognitive effect um, in, in patients with, uh, with depression. If that is true, it implies that, that magnetic seizure therapy in and of itself could have a pro-cognitive effect through its ability to induce brain plasticity. So it's an intriguing one. We haven't pursued it, but it's it's very appealing on many levels. Um, historically, ECT was was obviously not used in Alzheimer's. You didn't want to worsen a memory that was already had failed. But but uh, but if it's true that you can preserve the neuroplasticity while preventing the 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 deleterious cognitive effects, I think we may be on to something there. And I think there's a lot of research needs to be done to to sort those mechanisms out. That's great. Um, one audience member, Ms. Rachel Perlmutter, she's uh, inquiring about a family member who has schizophrenia and how he can avail, avail of the MST trial um, that you're doing at your clinic, Jess. Sure. So we, uh, we're hoping for funding um, in the near future. These trials are costly. They're important. But uh, but they require funding and they require substantive funding to do this. Um, then neither, none of them are paid by any insurers or, or um, by Medicare or Medicaid. And so these trials are costly to perform. Be that as it may, um, I think there we have a very positive signal. Canadian government has funded it. And the intention is to, to, to pursue a trial here in the U.S. and apply for NIH funding. Um, my hope is that, that that will be done in the next year or two. Um, are, uh, I think the signal is very positive. I treated these people myself. I saw 
the, the therapeutic improvement that they that they experienced firsthand. And I think it is a is a treatment that that we're hopeful for in the future, particularly in patients with schizophrenia who have severe schizophrenia who have severe schizophrenia and who are not responding to the medications. That's great for the potential of these new treatments for our patients. Um, uh, leading into the a question about funding, um, it, there's also a question about payment for these uh, therapies in general. So um, I believe that TMS is covered or certain kind of TMS is covered. Uh, maybe can you answer those, please? Sure. So TMS is covered by most insurers. Um, the only insurer that I'm, I'm, I'm that does not pay is, is Medi-Cal, but, but Medicare pays and a number of other private insurances also pay, um, which is great news. They have slightly different criteria, but most people do qualify when they have resistant depression. Uh, magnetic seizure therapy is still uh, experimental. Of course, ECT is covered uh, in cases of severe depression, in cases of severe, severe schizophrenia, but magnetic seizure therapy is, remains an ex, a, 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 a um, uh, an experimental treatment, and, and by virtue of the fact that it's an experimental treatment, um, we are we are it isn't a covered treatment. You can get it as part of a clinical trial. When we have magnetic seizure therapy uh, available here uh, and through funding of the NIH, those treatments will be covered, so patients will not have to to actually pay for. It. Um, uh, but uh, but these are these are important treatments. Um, they're pivotal treatments. They're treatments that are going to change the way we approach things. Uh, and I think it's just a matter of time before they become uh, widely available. Jeff, I'm curious if the cost of magnetic seizure therapy would be much different than the cost for ECT. I don't see why it would be. I think the machine is about two to three times more expensive, but those are, it's not an expensive machine. I mean, the cost of a, of a magnetic seizure therapy stimulator is about the same price as an ultrasound. And we know that ultrasounds are widely used. So I, and and those are experimental devices. So you can imagine when they when they scale properly and they go into wide wide production, the cost will go down considerably. So I expect that the, the cost of machine relative to the number of people who can treat is is trivial. I think some of the costs are you know, physician costs, the costs of delivering the anesthetic, the the um, environment. Those are those are are um, are significant costs, but but not prohibitive in terms of getting people treated. It's really exciting. I mean, there are so many people that don't get ECT because of the cognitive issues. So if we have a treatment that's in that same ballpark of efficacy, but without the cognitive issues, I mean, that's a, that's a game changer. There was a question around um, the use of ECT and RTMS and borderline personality disorder. I'm glad that question was asked because, because of the effects of magnetic seizure therapy on suicidality, we actually ran a trial, small trial, but a pivotal one that we're actually meeting about next week to discuss next steps. And the trial was looking specifically at magnetic seizure therapy in, in patients with depression and borderline personality disorder. And our sneak peek, if you will, showed us that the, the data was very positive, that patients did benefit significantly from less self-harm and significantly less um, um, suicidal and depressive symptoms. So there was clearly a therapeutic response. And what's intriguing about that therapeutic response is we typically think of borderline personality disorder as being unresponsive to treatments. And yet here's an example of when you produce a therapeutic seizure, patients get better. And so again, one of the, one of the um, um, positive um, paradoxical effects of these treatments is that we are showing therapeutic effects where people historically had written off a lot of these patients as being unresponsive. And we just show that if you 
if you stimulate the brain in, in uh, propitious ways, you can induce therapeutic effects. And, and the, 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 it underscores to me the importance of, of, of tailoring the treatments in the brain to a, to a particular illness for, for therapeutic improvements. That's great. And um, thank you for taking all the questions from the audience. Um, I'd like to ask what in the next couple of years or near future are you most excited about doing with uh, brain stimulation um, for both speakers? Oh, Jeff, I wanted to mention I accidentally moved this answer. There was one question about uh, TMS and uh, MST for substance use disorders. Um, I know you've done some of this work. TMS, there's a lot of different trials of TMS in various different regions for substance use disorders. Uh, there's FDA clearance already for nicotine addiction. So I suspect there will be um, at least good solid evidence coming up for different brain targets and specific brain targets for other types of substance use disorders as well. I'm not sure about MST and what you think about that. I, I don't know enough. I think we, you know, the once once it's it, there's a um, a a key early effect that needs to to happen, and that 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 um, important change is related to uh, approvals for magnetic seizure therapy. Mm -hmm. Once magnetic seizure therapy reaches that that that. Um, that threshold for being approved. Um, and that's what the CREST trial is going to be. The, the optimal outcome for the CREST trial is to show evidence of efficacy, evidence of non-inferiority in relation to depressive symptoms and evidence of superiority in relation to cognitive symptoms. I'll explain what I mean by all of that. It needs to be effective. It needs to be no worse than ECT, but it needs to be better in terms of its cognitive outcome. Once that happens and, and MST is then introduced to the US market, then we're going to see a lot more research being done in the area. But, but we do need that first catalyst step, which we're working on actively. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.